to find the words, not by hitting people over the head, but by connecting with what they know to be true in a way that's relatable. You know, if you can get people to laugh, they'll listen to you. If you can get people to feel an emotion, they'll listen to you. And that usually comes from story and less from lecturing, I have found. (laughs) Even as a parent, like it's the same thing. It's as a parent. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Story is a way of organizing the invisible life. You know, the invisible mm -hmm. life is invisible, but if you give it characters, you, you start to say, oh yeah, this story makes sense. That story doesn't make sense. This story is true. That story isn't true. And I think that that's uh, just an important thing that we all have to do in order to understand our own lives. Hi, welcome to Wild and Beautiful. We're Joanna Hyatt and Lauren Enriquez, your co-hosts who every week are helping you live out your faith in a way that's biblically rooted, but culturally relevant. Oh my goodness, friends, you are in for a treat this week, Uh, mainly because I just get to hang out and talk with a friend, but it's a friend you probably know, which doesn't always happen. So joining me this week is Drew Clavin, author, podcaster, uh, there's a screenwriter, just really dear friend for our family. So that's really all that matters. Welcome to Wild and Beautiful. (laughs) It's great to see you, Joe. How are you doing? Good. There's a long list of things we could say to recommend you, uh, but I think people are probably familiar with your podcast over on The Daily Wire, and you've been writing four years doing mysteries, New York Times bestsellers. Lauren is not on today, which is a real shame because she adores you. Like, would like to be adopted by you, adores you. (laughs) Has the paperwork drawn up, has informed me, in fact, said... (laughs) Make sure he knows how much I love him. I said, in a non-creepy way? Like, <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs> I, I accept creepy love. I'm, I'm all right with creepy love. She figures since you're, you know, a mystery writer that you can handle creepy and work with it. It'll be exactly. fine. It'll be fine. So, uh, but we're really excited to have you here. And the theme today, because this is, you know, airing right before Christmas, is we're just helping everybody out with their Christmas lists because you have written some fantastic books. I'm, I'm ready. I am ready to sell books for Christmas. Good, good. Well, the first one we want to jump into is uh, the one that came out, I think it was the summer, spring, The Truth and Beauty. If you're watching us on YouTube, you can see it here. And this one, I'll, I'll admit, when I first saw it, it said, you know, it's looking at the work of England's greatest poets. And I thought, oh, that sounds so boring. <laughs> <laughs> but you did a fantastic job, friends. It's not boring. It is not boring. This is the beauty of having somebody who knows how to tell stories write nonfiction because it felt like a great story. So what sort of prompted you to first do this? And then I want to dive into some pieces that stood out to me. Well, I will tell you the absolute truth is that I wrote this. I had to write this book. I felt called to write this book. When the lockdowns happened, Mm. I thought I better seize this moment to do this because all my speeches and travel were canceled. And I thought I better, I better do this now because it's a difficult book. I thought no one is going to want to read or buy (laughs) or publish this book. And it was the wildest experience because while I was writing it, I felt like I was standing, you know, those crime shows where they point rifles and there's a little laser dot on the guy. I felt I was standing on the laser dot of where God wanted me to be. I couldn't, oh, wow. my, my, my prayer life went silent because there was nothing mm-hmm. else I had to say. I just thought, just do write the book. This is what you're supposed to be doing. And it was bliss. I was in absolute bliss all the while knowing that no one would publish this book. No one would buy it. No one would read it. And I was going to have to publish it myself, but it had to be done. And so I wrote this crazy book, which was about my own reflections that I'll I'll tell you about in a second. But I sent it to the one, when I finished it, 
I showed it to my wife first, as I show everything to my wife. And she she literally said to me, I thought as I was reading this that you had gone insane. <laughs> I said to her, I said to her, no, no, it's a great book. I just have to cut out all the bad parts, you know, and I cut out all the bad parts. I sent it to the one editor um, in America or anywhere that I thought might actually like it. And he instantly bought it and gave me to know in his, he's a very polite, gentle gentleman. And he gave me to know in his very polite, gentle way that we weren't expecting to sell any copies. You know, we were going to bring this thing out, but he was supporting my writing. He was supporting me and he was in favor of this. We brought it out and it got on the USA Today bestseller list and it, it. it was, and it's still selling and it's, just the entire experience has just been, you know, when you're standing on that little laser dot, mm -hmm. just go with it. Just trust that experience because that's where you're supposed to be. So it's been a, a really remarkable uh, writing experience, really the most remarkable writing experience of my life, I think. Um, and, this, and the story is basically this. I, I was talking to my son. I was telling him about my confusion uh, of certain Bible passages, which turned out to be like almost all of the Gospels, uh, and saying, you know, some of this stuff just doesn't actually make sense to me. If, I, mm -hmm. if a guy, if Peter is walking on water and he starts to fall through the water and Jesus says to him, oh, ye of little faith. What is Jesus talking? Like, I've never walked even like a little bit on water. I, it seems to me it takes a tremendous amount of it. And all these questions that I had, my son, who is a brilliant, you know, doctor, he's a doctorate from Oxford. He went to Yale before that. He's a brilliant guy. He said, I think the problem is that you're trying to understand a philosophy instead of trying to get to know a person. Mm, and the minute good. he said that, I thought, yeah, that's obviously the smartest thing anyone ever said to me because, <laughs> you, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I know my wife very, very well. But if you ask me what her philosophy of life is, I'm not sure I would know. But if you ask me, would she like this movie or would she like this person or how would she react to this? I would know. I would be able to answer that question. So I set out to reread the Gospels to understand Jesus just mm -hmm. as, as the main character of the Gospels. I even taught myself Greek, although badly. I mean, that's pretty good still. Yeah, I was dedicated. <laughs> I was very dedicated. And I thought, no theology. I'm not going to listen to St. Paul. I'm not going to listen to anybody. I'm just going to listen to Jesus and get to know him. Just the way if you were reading a novel, you might get to know the main character, or you're reading a biography, you might get to know uh, the guy, the subject of the biography. And as I was doing this, the words that kept coming back to me to explain what he was saying were the words of the romantic poets, hmm. uh, Keats and Wordsworth and Coleridge. And to some degree, Mary Shelley, who was not a poet, but was a romantic writer, the woman who wrote a uh, young girl, really, who wrote Frankenstein. And I thought th this is actually not as weird an idea as it sounds like, because these guys were writing at a time just like our time when faith was collapsing, when yep. the entire world was changing, gender roles were being questioned, everything was being questioned. It was the revolutionary uh, French Revolution time, and every and these guys were radicals. So a lot of them started out as radicals. Some of them became conservatives, uh, and and they were trying to reconstruct the basis of European culture, which was Christianity. Mm -hmm. And they were doing it without knowing it. They didn't know what they were doing. They just knew that the bottom had fallen out and they had to start again. And so what they were doing was recreating Christianity without talking about Christianity, with one exception, which was Coleridge, who was 
not only the most brilliant of them, but one of the most brilliant men who ever lived. And he remained a believer from all for his whole life and inspired the rest of them. So it wasn't really as crazy as it sounded. I just knew that to explain it to anybody was going to be the job of a lifetime. And it really was, a, a you know, I, I tried to say it as you as you said, I tried to do it in terms of the stories of these men and who they were and the struggles that they faced, which are incredible because on this little island of England, uh, of Great Britain, every great poet, the greatest poets of the age were all living, you know, Shelley and Keats and Wordsworth and Coleridge and Byron and uh, Blake. They were all alive at the same time, all of them interacting with each other and interacting uh, with their the poetry and interacting with the poetry of the past, which is part of the story, too. And so it was really a very dynamic and beautiful story. And the poetry is as beautiful as anything, although I didn't write the book for people who read poetry. I wrote it for people who don't read poetry. That was, that was, that my, was me. Oh, my God. I am people who don't read poetry because I read, I went, wow, I need to go find these poets. <laughs> you know, you hear nice. these names, but we've lost this practice of incorporating poetry into regular literature that we are reading as we grow up. And so poetry can seem a little daunting. And the way you did it, it, it connected it to what is going on. In the intro, you sort of lay out that the fight is really between belief and unbelief in their time. But I thought, Wow, that is so true for our time. And there was a lot in this book that really did feel like this is, we're living this again. And yet I didn't feel hopeless by the end. I felt hopeful because I thought, well, they navigated this. And so could we, if we could just have a few great writers come out of this. <laughs> well, you know, it really is true that it ended, the, the Romantic Age ended with the Victorian Age, which I think is one of the high points of human culture and human history, uh, a time of great um, you know, conservatism in, in so the social world, but also of reform, of giving the votes to more people, of understanding that we, we're going to have to live with uh, Catholics and Protestants in the world and not kill each other, uh, and, and a time when England extended its reach uh, you know, over the much you know, attacked English Empire, British Empire, which in fact civilized the world. And so I'm actually quite hopeful about the present age, which is similarly an age of revolution, an age when certain bad ideas have caught up with us yet again, uh, but an age when people are thinking in new ways and when belief is, I think, inescapable. I think everything that's going wrong in our culture has to do with non-belief and with materialism, not in the sense of greed, but in the sense of thinking of ourselves as, as meat puppets with chemistry sets inside instead of as spirits you know, having a human experience. How do you how do you think though we connect with people who are on the side of unbelief? Because there seemed to be a time where, you know, we may disagree on how we should go about an idea, but we had this sort of baseline commonality, whether it was because we had grown up in Christian homes, um, we understood sort of what natural law was, things that were instinctively right or wrong. I know and the transgenderism thing is one that just kind of came out of nowhere. And you think 25 years ago, nobody would have been saying, oh yeah, this makes total sense. This is great. Uh, and, and so how do we even begin a conversation with people who don't even have that foundation from which we can work together? That's, you know, that is the great question. That's oh, good. I'm question. so glad I could ask and, that. <laughs> no, and it is the, and it's the question that these poets were dealing with. They didn't have to, they didn't, they couldn't go back to Christianity and say, this is true because yeah. people had lost their faith. They had to go back and say, oh, here's a reason to believe in the soul. Here's a reason to believe that we are not 
just material. Uh, here's a way of looking at life. And people would read the poetry of Wordsworth, who didn't become a Christian until much later in his life. They would read the poetry of Wordsworth, and suddenly they weren't depressed anymore, and they didn't know why. Uh, they had gone into this uh, tunnel of materialism, this tunnel of uh, of rationality, rationalism, scientism, uh, where these things were going to solve all the problems and they had become depressed. And suddenly they read Wordsworth and they weren't depressed anymore. And what I feel is, is this, you know, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and tomorrow, mm -hmm. but we're not the same. Our language changes, our technology changes, our experience of the world changes because we've gone through all these radical things. And we have to find new ways to talk about the old truths. People keep saying to me that I should stop talking about God and stop trying to convince people uh, through God. But the fact is, when we talk to people morally, we are assuming God. We are depending on their heritage of Christian faith to guide them. When we say, you know, it's not when we say, for instance, somebody is in favor of abortion and we hold up a picture and say, that's a baby in the womb. And they go, oh, my God, I didn't realize that that's what a baby looks like at, at 12 weeks, at 18 weeks. Right. We're depending on something within them that is God given and also God based. And so it, it's not a bad thing to work your way back to God. I mean, you can't start by pounding the Bible because people don't believe in the Bible. Right. They don't care what's in the Bible. But you can start by saying, are you happy? You know, one of the things that when I was still giving a lot of speeches, I would get up sometimes and just say, you know, I'm an old guy, but it looks to me like women, young women are miserable. Mm -hmm. When I'm finished with the speech, stand up and tell me you're not. And, and I want to hear it. Nobody ever, not once did any woman ever stand up and tell me she wasn't miserable. They all just confirmed what I said. You start from there. Then you start asking, what path are you on? that makes you miserable. You don't even have to get to God. You just have to remind them that they have an internal life, that their internal right. life is what their life is about. You know, I mean, this is when, when I talk about, for instance, pornography, I, I, I point out, you know, that you're dealing with a woman when you're dealing with pornography, who's a shape. She's a flat, two-dimensional mm -hmm. shape. She has no inner life. And then you wonder why you're impotent when you turn to an actual woman who's a person who you actually like and don't want to do the things to her that you saw in pornography, yep. don't want to treat her that way. You wonder why suddenly your body shuts down. Well, it's because you're not a shape, you know? I mean, neither of us, not men nor women are shapes. These things have to be retaught. We are so far down this path that people literally think they can cut pieces off their bodies and change their sexes. They literally can be convinced of this nonsense. And unless they are reminded that they are something complete, that they are, their body is, is like a word that expresses an idea. It's not that they're, it's not that there's a little ghost, Casper the ghost inside their body, but their body is expressing something that is in another, you know, is held in the mind of God. You know, we really have to start at the beginning. And that's yeah. what these poets did. And that's why I go back to them. And that's why I think the book has, has touched people the way it did. What I thought, when I thought I was going to be hand selling books out on the street that I had self published, like they're going to be typed on uh, computer paper, uh, <laughs> that th this is why I think the book reached people because they thought, oh yeah, I forgot. You know, I'm not just this shape walking around. I, I like that your editor really set the expectations low. <laughs> <laughs> he's such a he's a wonderful, wonderful human being, and he's just, just you know such that a way. No one was disappointed. <laughs> if we just if we keep the bar at this is not selling and you're crazy, then anything above that is just a win. Which th this book is definitely uh, a win. So, friends, if you have not yet gotten a copy, be sure to check out the Truth and Beauty by Andrew Clavin. And you know, in there, and and you kind of uh, uh, touched on it, and maybe you don't realize you actually are very affirming of women, which as a woman raising four daughters, 
maybe I'm just like keen to hear that. But I noticed in the book, you know, you, you talk about where Mary Shelley is is pointing out too that this we're we're trying to take women out of the role of women. And yeah, maybe it's some great advance in science someday. We figure out how to raise children and grow them without needing a woman, or maybe it's the worst thing we could ever be doing. And you you talk about how the first thing to go is women as women in yep. trying to push unbelief and dismantle what's old. And we're seeing that now. You know, this is this is the, the chapter on Frankenstein, which is mm-hmm. the chapter, in fact, that seems to have moved people most, uh, is is about this 18, 19-year-old girl who essentially is inventing science fiction. She's she's writing the book that becomes modern science fiction. There are books you can say before this that were kind of science fiction. But this is actually the first work of what we think of as science fiction. And she and everyone else always says that this is the story of a man who tries to seize power from God by making life. But that's just not true. It's just not the story of the book. All human beings can make life. Uh, They make life from things that are there. Only God can make life from nothing. That's very different. And that's not what Victor Frankenstein does. What he does is he seizes from women the power to make life. He makes a person who has no mother. And the entire story and all the symbolism of the story is built into this. And Mary is a woman who has run off with a guy uh, who has left his wife, uh, Percy Shelley. She idolizes him as she idolized her father. She never stops idolizing him even after he's dead. And yet he treats her very badly. I mean, he believes in free love. He and Byron are, you know, basically living out this doctrine of free love. Uh, and she is kind of going along with it. But meanwhile, she's having babies who are dying. Uh, she's in grief and they don't care. They kind of mm-hmm. say, why are you grieving? We need, you know, we want you here with us. Why are you off grieving these little babies? You know, her father yells at her for grieving a two year old yeah. child. He says, the child is two, you know, so you, you know, the whole world doesn't come to an end. And she writes this book in which women become obsolete. And that is the basis of science fiction. And I maintain and, and I sort of prove in the book that this is the basis of all science fiction, the target of science is women. How do you eliminate women? They are just a pain in the neck. You want to have sex with them and then they have these children and then you have to take care of these children. (laughs) They have emotions about these children and men have been trying to eliminate this factor from their life, which is in fact the source and fountainhead of our humanity. I mean, it's not just and, and Wordsworth writes about this so beautifully. It's not that women produce life with their bodies alone. It's that they produce life in the interchange of mother and child. And science, not that I care that much because I knew Wordsworth was right when I read his words, but science has borne Wordsworth out that it's in the interchange of mother and child that people individuate and become human beings. And you only have to talk to somebody who had a mother who loved them and talk to somebody who didn't to know the difference. You can see it almost mm-hmm. instantaneously. And so what I maintain is basically this is the the fork in the road ahead of us, not just uh, behind us, is is whether or not, you know, we're going to have a human world or not, Uh, Mm. because soon, no doubt, there'll be machines that produce children. Uh, Soon there'll be a a synthetic womb that can produce a human being. And the question is, are we going to use it? Uh, Some people will, I think. And then there's going to be that rebel band of people who have kept humanity alive through since the year, literally the year dot, uh, who say, no, you know, this is the, the role, the activity between men and women is where we live. And this transgender movement, it's not just a movement of, of perversion, though it's also that. It is a movement to eliminate women. It is a w- movement to say 
women don't exist. And that's why my friend Matt Walsh's movie was so, mm-hmm. so powerful because he just said, just define the word woman and nobody can do it. You know, this to me is so basic. It's so obvious. And it's such a problem with feminism. You know, when, when I attack feminism, which I do all the time, people immediately say, oh, you don't think women should have rights. And I think that that's nonsense. You know, all people have equal human rights. That has nothing to do with anything. But feminism is basically the elevation of male values. It mm-hmm. says to women, you are just a homemaker unless you yes. have you know career ambition, unless you're making money. Even the other day, I said to a friend of mine, you know, mothers are doing the most important job in society, but men are in charge of who makes history. Men say, this is what history is. Men say, this is what where the award should go. This is where the money should go. And so they, you know, they direct it to the things that they do, naturally enough, because that's the way men are. Yeah. And even he said to me, yes, because women make the people who make history. And I said, no, because history is unimportant. History is, is only is only an ancillary fact of the production of humanity, which is the all important thing, the making of souls. And I don't mean to sent- I don't want to sentimentalize motherhood. It's not like the Victorians kind of did that. They sort of sentimentalized, you know, the, oh, the angel in the house. I know what I've, I've, I lived with a mother, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm married to a mother. I've seen the, the work that goes into it and what it is. And sometimes it's brain deadening. Sometimes it's drudgery. And, and but at the same time, it's soul work. Um, it's just the most important thing anybody does. And I, I mean, and, and without it, we won't be human beings. And I don't think we're going to like that. Like we think that's going to solve all our problems, but it's just the end of, of what we are. Well, and what exposes that feminism, at least modern day feminism, is a joke, is that they are not stepping in to protect women. It's really about how do women become like men. That's that, yeah. that's what the move for feminism to me feels like. It's like, how can we strip you of all the things that make you uniquely feminine and a woman and your abilities? Okay, so if you cannot have children, that doesn't mean you're any less of a woman, but all the things that a woman is potentially capable of, let's strip that down and make you look just like a man and call it equality. Well, that's, you know, and this is what kills me about like movies now where if you don't say a woman is strong, Mm-hmm. Then you, then you've insulted her and all the women in movies have their hands on their hips and they look like super, and they, you know, they have women beating people up and punching guys and the guy goes rolling out the door. You think like, this is garbage, you know, this is like a lie to begin with, but it also has left out this, this major factor that's going on in the world of women, not just giving birth, but producing human beings through the interaction of themselves with enough person. And that's not, that's not a source of drama. You know, that's not a source of interest uh, to us. I I don't know. It's very, um, it's a very sick and sad thing. And it is the dominant idea of our culture. And it all goes back to materialism. I mean, you, you know, I mean, the story that we have from the gospels is the story of God incarnating himself so that we can know him. And the first thing he does is he chooses a mother and he doesn't have to do that. Right. He could snap his fingers or whatever, whatever God uses for fingers. He could just say, I will now be a person. But he doesn't do that. He takes the path to humanity that we all have to take. Uh, and, and, and because of that, Mary becomes a holy figure in the lives of both Catholics and Protestants. I understand we have differences about it, but still, you know, this becomes basically the model of humanity, uh, through the gospels. It, it's, it's a remarkable thing. It's a remarkable, mm-hmm. uh, corruption in the human heart. Uh, that is playing itself out so graphically now, but began to play itself out then. 
Uh, and it's, it, it's really interesting to see us have to come to it again because all bad ideas, because of the corruption of the human heart, all bad ideas come back. Yeah. When I listen to your uh, podcast, I love that you will frequently take letters in the mailbag from moms. Yeah. And, and just the way you do affirm motherhood for somebody who is at home uh, these days a lot more than I maybe even thought I would be, it is encouraging because culture does make motherhood sound like it's like the the backup plan if you can't cut it at something else. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, oh, I'm so sorry you can you couldn't do a job. So you're a mom. It's like, oh no, that's that's actually not how this works. Uh, so so to hear that affirmed repeatedly is encouraging. And I I know that there's lots of moms that oftentimes feel unseen. Uh, even as we're simultaneously being told, no, 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 but it's really important what you're doing. <laughs> so yeah. it's great yeah, to see yeah. you consistently uh, celebrating celebrating moms in all of our rawness and mess. And, you know, that's what the questions are in the mailbag. A lot of times it's the things women are struggling with. Uh, I want to shift to your memoir. This is probably the oldest book on the list that we're talking about today. The Great Good Thing, How a Secular Jew Comes to Faith in Christ. And, you know, you've mentioned before that and in, in reading that book, you see that a lot of books really actually led you to Christianity. What were some of the key books that you would say, you know, if you have a friend who's not a believer, if you have a friend who is secular, what are some books that got you pointed in the right direction that you well, could you know, recommend? It's, it, it's, it's really interesting. I, I lived in a house that was all boys, you know, except for my mom. I had three brothers, a lot. But my, my life was like one long fist fight until I was about <laughs> 17, you know. And... And yet I, I felt a lack of male role models. Hmm. I felt there was something missing in the values of my house that were making it difficult. And so what I turned to was I turned to what is now called uh, tough guy fiction. Got I it. read Ernest Hemingway. I read uh, the detective stories of Raymond Chandler with Philip Marlowe, uh, Dashiell Hammett, The Maltese Falcon. And I love these books and I love the movies that they made out of them with Humphrey Bogart and guys like John Wayne and all this. But I noticed that in a lot of them, there was this theme of, of quest uh, and mm-hmm. a lot of them, Raymond Chandler, especially, who was my big writing hero, uh, Philip Marlowe was the guy I wanted to be, essentially. I wanted to become Philip Marlowe, this, this honest man in a corrupt society. And he was based on the knights, on the idea that he was carrying within him the concept of knighthood. That's how the first Philip Marlowe begins, is with him thinking about being a knight in this corrupt world. And so I started to read the books about King Arthur. And it's really shocking how the Arthurian legends have led so many people that I've now met uh, to conversion, uh, to actually finding Christ through the stories of these knights in armor, uh, you know, doing good deeds for the round table and searching for the Holy Grail. But for me, a Jewish kid who didn't know anything about Christianity, I thought, gee, there's a lot of Christianity in these stories. Um, maybe I should find out about this because I, by then I was 15. I wanted to be a writer. I knew I wanted to be a writer and I wanted to know what writers knew, you know? So I started to read the gospels beginning with the gospel. I had to go out and buy a, a, a Bible with the gospels in them. Cause I, you know, we didn't have one at home. Right. Um, and I tell in my memoir, it's a hilarious, but tragic story that my, I'm 15 years old. It's the 1960s. I'm sexually active. I mean, I could have been doing all kinds of things, could have been reading anything, uh, but I'm reading the gospels of Luke and my father walked in on me and caught me reading the gospels. And he was furious. I, I you know, I look back on it and it's funny now, uh, because he, he literally could have caught me with a girl. He could have caught me with any kind of pornography that I was also reading, but he caught me with the gospels. He was absolutely furious. 
this because he looked upon this, as many Jews do, as the enemy. This is the threat, mm. letting the enemy into the household. He screamed at me. He told me he would disown me if I ever even thought of converting. And I'm just trying to explain to him, you know, no, I'm actually just reading this as, as research. And, and yet, and yet, it was such a central idea mm. to all the novels that I loved that it began to haunt me. And that that was the thing. And, you know, there's a wonderful line in William Blake where he says the Bible is the great code of literature, that you can't understand the Bible. You can't understand literature without understanding the great code uh, that deciphers it. And that is absolutely true. And so the more I became a writer, and even as I started to become successful as a writer, the more I kept returning to this story of Jesus and trying to explain it away, uh, trying to explain it as a psychological uh, event that sort of informs stories. I mean, I would read books in which the character would convert and I would say, well, symbolic, you know, that is not really saying that this Jesus stuff is true. And yet it became more and more central to my life. I had terrible, terrible uh, troubles in my twenties uh, as I struggled with the way I had been brought up and with my own, you know, madness. And I went insane. I went nuts. And at that point I thought, I can't accept God now, even though re mm. I now have reasoned myself to the place where I understand God. It would just be a crutch. I would just be trying to keep from being so as miserable as I am, which shows you how stubborn. I, I'm, a, you know, I'm a hard, I'm a hard character. I mean, I, th I think that's, I look back and think, wow, that's pretty tough. You know, <laughs> it's like, you know, you're drowning, but you're not going to take driftwood because that would be a, you know, a crutch. Sign of weakness. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but by the grace of God, and I do believe, Joe, this was a, a genuine miracle. I, I found a psychiatrist who healed me. And this is doesn't happen. Most psychiatrists are useless. <laughs> and he actually, um, he actually healed me. And I was at the end of five years of going to see him once a week. Uh, I was a happy, successful, uh, you know, well-functioning person. And at that point, when I was joyful, I began to think, well, wait a minute, all that stuff that I was thinking about God remains true, even now that I'm not miserable. Uh, and that was what led me uh, to prayer and prayer led me to Christ. And so, and so, you know, the, the things that you read, it's really in some ways what you're looking for. I mean, you can read almost anything. The book that I think I come back to again and again and again is Crime and Punishment. Because when I was, when I was in college, that's when rel moral relativism, postmodernism, all the things that have led to transgenderism were first coming up through the ranks, first coming up through the uh, academy. And when I read Crime and Punishment, I just remember thinking, oh, it's all untrue. And so that kind of turned the ship of my life in a different direction. And I remember at one point when my life, when my career was faltering, I asked a, a friend of mine, a real far left wing uh, Yale PhD to read something I'd written that I couldn't sell. And I said, why is, why am I not selling my books when I know this book is good? And he said, because you're sailing in the exact opposite direction mm. of your culture. And I thought, oh, okay, <laughs> I'm for that, you know. But you've continued to sail in that direction. I think what's I remarkable is that, you know, you have this history in a home where the Gospels are the worst thing you could be reading, a secular Jew. You're a Hollywood writer. You know, you're steeped in, you know, this culture of intellectuals and academia. You have, you know, a Oxford scholar for a son, Spencer Clavin, no relation. And, and yet you have become very outspoken uh, with a very contagious faith in Jesus. Was there a point where you thought, okay, I'm going to lose everybody. I'm going to lose all the friends. I don't, no. I'm still going to go. Or was there a struggle to say, okay, it, like a crossroads. Do, do I pursue this knowing I'm going against the culture and it may cost everything around me? Um, 
Or did it just sort of feel like that laser dot that you referenced at the beginning? You're like, but oh. this is exactly where I'm supposed to be. No, no, no. I, you know, I was, when I, be, I became a theist and I was praying and I prayed over the course of five years. And at the end of five years, prayer had so transformed my life for the better that I actually, I was living in Santa Barbara. I was a Hollywood screenwriter. I was driving up BMW convertible. I drove up into the, the hills and I said to God, you know, you tra- you've transformed my life. What am I supposed to do for you? Mm. And it wasn't a voice in my ear. I'm not like, I don't hear voices, but I did hear this very, very solid thought. You should be baptized. And I'm driving along and I said out loud, you got to be kidding me. You know, <laughs> you know that it would destroy my life. You know, my father will stop talking to me. I'm working in Hollywood. I'm making a bundle in Hollywood. I'll lose all my jobs and all this stuff. Uh, and I, I spent five months wrestle, wrestling with it, mm. trying to get out of it, looking as W.C. Fields once said, I'm looking for a loophole, you know, and I couldn't. And I ultimately, out of just pure authenticity, I had to be baptized. Um, I went from making and I don't know how much of this was politics and how much of it was religion, but I went from making uh, seven figures in Hollywood to making zero. Uh, I had to sell my house. Um but I never, I don't know. I never regretted. I, I, I don't think I lost a minute's sleep over it, although it was difficult. Um, I know I have a lot of friends who paid the price to keep the money and keep the jobs. Mm. I look in their eyes. I never want to see that in my own. I never want to look in a mirror and see the look in their eyes in my eyes, you know? And so I've, I've, yeah. I've had a, a jolly life, you know, I mean, I've, a, a joyous life, truly. I, I said to myself when I, was baptized. If it turns out that this turns me into some flake headed, uh, happy talk, smiley face jackass, I'll stop. I'll, I'll walk away. But instead, it made me much more realistic. Uh, it made me understand the tragedy of life, uh, much more deeply, the corruption of the human heart mm-hmm. and my own heart much more deeply. Uh, it has made me a much tougher, more realistic writer, uh, the opposite of what I was afraid of. Um, and so, and yet at the same time, it has filled me with joy, uh, by which I, I don't mean happiness. I mean, just right. vitality in life, you know? Uh, so yeah, there was a price, you know, there was a price yep. for it, but it's, it, it just has never bought. It's weird to say it, but it is absolutely true. You know, I never woke up in the middle of the night and thought maybe I should, you know, ditch this stuff and get my old screenwriting work back. Uh, and, and, you know, God has taken care of me. Listen, I'm, I'm not a suffering guy. I've made it through. You know, we've had, we had a somewhat light, tough times. We never starved. I'm not in jail like, you know, Jimmy Lai up in, out in Hong Kong, you know, Catholic guy fighting his corner. It was, it was an easy martyrdom, if, uh, if you can mm-hmm. even call it that. I mean, so, um, and the, and the rewards have been in, insane. I mean, insanely joyful. I, I don't even know how to begin to, Certainly don't know how to begin to be grateful for it, but I don't even know how to begin to describe it. So, Well, in these last few minutes, let's shift to look at your writing now, <laughs> uh, essentially after. You know, last, last Christmas, you came out with When Christmas Comes, A Yuletide Mystery. And then this Christmas, you have the follow-up to that, A Strange Habit of Mine. Now, you've said that this is the first time you ever did a series— is that true? Like, I mean, I'm not calling you a liar, uh, but I just have been trying to go, I'm like, you've never had like a consistent character in all of your other crime, mystery, not, none, no, none of them were a repeat? I've written trilogies, 
Okay. And, and I started out writing under a pseudonym when I was very young, uh, writing this, what was going to be a series of mysteries, but I just lost interest in it. I just thought, no, I, you know, I don't really want to write series. I like, I think of a story as a, an arc from a mm-hmm. character in one place to where he lands because of the thing that he goes through. But this again, and I, this wasn't providential. I don't know what it is. While I was writing The Truth and Beauty uh, and Lockdown, uh, my friend Otto Penzler, who is probably the greatest uh, mystery editor on earth, uh, called me up and he said, how would you feel about writing a Christmas mystery? And I, and I have had this idea in my head for 30 years that wow. I had never been able to solve. You know, I had this plot. I had an end, a last scene that I knew was a great Christmas mystery and I'd never been able to solve it. And I said, let me, you know, since you ask, let me go out and try and solve this thing. And walking through the empty streets of Hollywood, you know, because everybody was locked down. Right. I, in two days, I came up with the story for when Christmas comes. And so after I finished The Truth and Beauty, I went right into writing that. Uh, also a lovely experience. We're having a wonderful time. But in the middle of it, I thought this character is different than other characters mm. because it, what really happens in this story is other people's story becomes the main story, not his so he is so many faceted that he could go through many stories. Um, and I thought, I've never done this before, and I love doing new things, so let me try and do it. And um, the new book, A Strange Habit of Mind, uh, is also has been a USA Today bestseller as well. And um, it's, been, it's been really exciting. So, uh, and and there, it's interesting to write books in a woke world where most people in publishing, it's only because Otto protects me, most people in publishing have editors come in. They've done it to me. They come in and they say, you describe this character as coffee colored, but you know, slaves had to pick coffee. So you can't do that. And, you know, my, my answer to that is unprintable. I wouldn't say my answer in front of a lady. You know, I mean, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to do that. And it's only because I'm protected uh, by Otto and his press so that I get to do it. And, and I think it's, res- it's resonating with people. So Enriquez sent me a question. She said, after having read The Great Good Thing and the Cameron Winter books, so Cameron Winter is the main character in in these Christmas mysteries, if you will. She had she wondered, um, is the childhood of Cameron Winter that you write about in When Christmas Comes at all inspired by your own? Well, well, sure. You know, it's funny. Can we I, I ask that? <laughs> you know, you use you you always use bits of yourself like yeast in every yeah. character that you create to bring them to life. And for some reason, all my life, people have looked at some horrible villain who's committing sex crimes and butchering children, whatever somebody's doing in one of my horrible, you know, these horrible tension uh, filled books of suspense. And they say, did you base him on you? <laughs> <laughs> and they do it wow. all the time. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, I had a character. I had a character who was actually the hero of a book, but who who dabbled in sadomasochism in his youth, and it was the thing he was trying to escape. And I had to actually do research. I had to go online. <laughs> what do these people do to each other? But people, is that you? You know, it's like no, it's mm. not. However, I did use liberally things in from that are I talk about openly in the my memoir. Uh, that do come into uh, Cameron Winter's life, yeah. um, you know, a, a sort of um, 
a sort of sad little rich boy a childhood that he goes through that, you know, has echoes of mine. And, and it really does. He also is a lover of the romantic poets and a teacher of the romantic poets. So he has that. We have that in common. But he is also a, a deadly, uh, you know, human being. And I, I think I'm less probably a lot less <laughs> deadly than that. And I, you know, I mean, he's he's not. It's funny. He's not my daydream. He's not like who I want to be in any way, right. shape or form. But our lives do intersect. There's no question. I I like him because he is complex. You're like, he's not all like just perfect good, which to read the truth and beauty, you realize these poets were complex. They were not oh, perfect. And you know, we talked about Mary Shelley's kind of backstory. You think, wow, they created these pieces of culture, essentially that changed their time, but they came from such a messy place. Uh, and so I actually, I think that's, again, speaks to the truth of the power of the gospel, that it takes what is so often a mess and the mix of good and bad and can bring something good and transformative that we on our own can't do. We just, we're well, not capable of that. I, it's so deadening in, in much of modern Christianity and certainly in Christian fiction. It is so deadening. Uh, the happy endings and the decent people and the niceness and the sweetness and the lack of ego that people, you know, show, it doesn't exist anywhere in real life. And, you know, just yeah. remember that the rock, the rock of Christ's church is Peter who betrayed him in his worst moments. I mean, when you read that passage and you actually read it and look at it, think like, wow, if I did this, that would be the rest of my life. I would sit around punching myself in the head for having done this. And yet this is the rock on which the church is founded uh, and should be founded because we're all betrayers and all, you know, corrupt and all this stuff. And yet that is where the joy comes in. You know, it's, it's so weird. We spend so much of our life avoiding shame. Uh, how hard it is to say I was wrong, how hard it is to say I'm sorry, how hard it is to say, you know, I'm, I'm how flawed we are. And yet when you do it and you know that God has already forgiven you and loves you for it, this is this tremendous relief of pressure. Uh, you know, you don't have to play. You don't have to pretend anymore. Listen to the way people talk. If you listen to the way people talk, I would guess like 85% of what they say is communicating to you what a good person they are. So in other words, lying, mm. 85% of what they're saying is untrue. <laughs> Remember you know? that, friends, and, as you head into Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, so if you realize we're all on the, we're all on the naughty list, you know, that uh, um, it's just, it's very relaxing. You know? Well, and, and as you said, it, it added depth to your writing. You know, Andrew, my husband, my Andrew is a filmmaker. Yes. And we talk often about how actually, uh, you know, having a Christian worldview gives you a deeper story, a more richer storytelling ability, because you are not, I mean, trying to just say all bad because you know that there is hope and there's an answer to the brokenness in humanity, but neither are you oblivious to the brokenness. You understand why it's there. And sometimes when Christians try to just do the good stuff, the football, you know, touching at the end, it, it doesn't connect because it's missing what we all know to be true, which is the brokenness in each of us. Right. And people are in so much pain. I mean, everybody all mm -hmm. the time is in so much pain, uh, so much anxiety. We have so much worry. You know, it's like all, all, all this stuff, all the stuff that haunts us. If you pick up a story or you turn on a TV show and it's all like, you know, Christmas, it's all Hallmark and Christmassy. You know, that has its place. I'm not knocking it. I, I, I think that, you know, uh, a little bit of uh, mindless entertainment is not going to kill you. But when you really want a book at three o'clock in the morning, uh, you do not want to reach out and find this deadening uh, uh, smiley face happiness because it's not going to get you through the to, to morning, you know? And it's like, that, that's not the kind of stuff I write. Um, it's why I, I sometimes find 
especially with conservatives who are, um, there's a lot of philistinism in conservatism. Uh, a lot of people who think that, you know, the next congressional uh, race is so much more important than the next novel or movie. And when I say to people, you know, you should really buy the works of people like me, you know, and buy good good art from people like me, because that's where the future is. The future actually is created by culture, not by politics. And so uh, I, I just think it's so important that we tell the truth, you know, and sometimes fiction is the only way that you can tell the truth. Well, and you make that case, well, you know, when we were talking about the truth and beauty of just if you realize that this shift happened because of poets essentially speaking back to what we know to be true in our hearts, but maybe we don't have words for, then what an opportunity we have right now in this time of upheaval to find the words, not by hitting people over the head, but by connecting with what they know to be true in a way that's relatable. You know, if you can get people to laugh, they'll listen to you. If you can get people to feel an emotion, they'll listen to you. And that usually comes from story and less from lecturing, I have found. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even yeah, as a parent, a of, like it's the same yeah. thing. It's as a parent. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Story is a so, way of organizing the invisible life. You know, the invisible mm -hmm. life is invisible, but if you give it characters, you, you start to say, oh yeah, this story makes sense. That story doesn't make sense. This story is true. That story isn't true. And I think that that's uh, just an important thing that we all have to do in order to understand our own lives. All right. Last question for you, because we're at the end. Um, this podcast is about how do we live culturally relevant lives that are still biblically rooted. And I think you do this well because you are not afraid to be a vocal, uh, outspoken Christian, but standing at that intersection of tackling culture. What would you say to somebody who said, you know, they're in their late 20s or their mom kind of doing the stay at home thing? Like, how do we when it can feel overwhelming, I will say, is just the bad news keeps piling on. How do we live wild and beautiful uh, in a way that is sustainable? You know, I, I think the first thing, I, I think the first thing is to deal with first things. I think that the, the first thing you should do is ask yourself, what am, what am I doing? What am mm -hmm. I striving for? Why uh, am I am I changing diapers? You know, uh, why am I waking up in the middle of the night? What, what am I, I creating here? Because I think in some ways, <clears throat> the opposite of evil is not good. The opposite of evil is creation. And I think that what we're put, put on earth to, you know, there's all this talk in the, in the gospels, you know, unless you're a branch of my, this is the thing that haunts me every single day, every single day. I think of the fact that if, unless you're a branch of the line of God, you're not going to bear good fruit. Mm. Well, then you think about that. And the purpose that you have is to bear fruit, is to create something out of yourself, even if it's only yourself, only if it's, even if it's only the person that God made you to be. The one thing every single human being on earth knows for a hundred percent certainty is he is not the person he was meant to be. Everyone, every one of us knows this. And that is actually the meaning of your life. That is actually the direction, the North Star of your life. And if you start to think in those terms, instead of thinking, what am I doing right this minute? Where are my hands right this minute? You start to understand that the work of your hands is, is the expression of your soul. And then it starts to become more meaningful. If you are going to live a material life, you're going to be miserable. You're going to, you know, you'll have, you'll have your drugs, you'll have your, you know, your drinks, you'll have the things that get you by. And in those moments, you'll have bliss. But if you're not going to live into the spirit of who you were meant, were meant to be, you're going to be miserable. There is great joy in understanding. You know, I, I, I often say it's the difference between being lost in a storm and being in a storm, but seeing the North Star and thinking, okay, that's where I'm going. That is where you're heading. And so what I would just say is begin with the first things. What am I doing here? What is the purpose of what I'm doing here? And if you think that that's going to be told to you by a guy who never did anything, 
uh, and never invented anything, but has something to say about everything. It's probably not. It's probably going to come from the wisdom of the ages that has given you everything you have. And so go back, you know, find out what people were saying, find out the things that they talked about, uh, the ideas that they had, the things they died for and decide what you would live for and what you would die for. And I think if you start with those first things, life becomes much easier. It sounds hard, but it's actually much easier. Less Twitter, more Tolkien. <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Drew, for joining us. Everyone, the books we talked about will be in the show notes. Please pick up one, two, three of them. Um, add them to your Christmas list. Be sure to share this podcast. Be sure to rate it and, and pass along to people who need some ideas for Christmas books, some encouragement in living in this culture in a way that is wild and beautiful. 